Welcome to my world. Welcome to the Trucking Technology and Efficiency Space today. Uh, real quick for all the new people who might not be familiar, when I call you a bunch of fuckers, it's a good thing. Uh, F-O-K-R, Friends of Kevin Rutherford. One of our listeners started that a long time ago, and I kind of like it, so I started using it again. Um, we've got a great show lined up today. Um, I've got Joel Morrow with me. Henry Albert, uh, I believe Matt is here, and also we're going to be joined by a special guest today, David Counts. We've got a lot lined up. Before we get to today's uh, topic, I do want to clarify something from yesterday's topic, and I'm also going to be bringing in speakers as we go here, um, and we'll get to the speakers here in just a minute. So yesterday, uh, we had the caller, the woman who went off on a rant wanted to blame an owner-operator failure on the government, taxes, and all kinds of stuff. And I was kind of harsh with her, and I shut her down. Um, I, I was going to give her one more chance. I think I might have been able to help, but she bailed on me. Um, if she would have just let me ask her some questions and just answered them, I could have gotten to a place where I might have been able to help her. But I, I don't really think she wanted help. I think she just wanted to rant. Um, but I mentioned several times during that conversation that fuel should not be an issue for owner operators. And I said, it's because of the fuel surcharge. And I received a couple comments and I, I had a conversation and text about the fuel surcharge. And there's a lot of confusion about this. There has been for years. This is one of those topics that I need to get better at explaining this. Most people completely misunderstand why there is no fuel surcharge stated in the spot market. But I will promise you, the numbers will show it. There is a very, very strong correlation. It's not 100% because the spot market is negotiated every load. But the fuel surcharge absolutely impacts spot market rates. And you are, in essence, getting a fuel surcharge by the rate alone. Why don't we just use a fuel surcharge in the spot market then? Because it's not necessary and it would confuse things for no reason. Let me explain why. Here is how fuel surcharges work and why we even have them. It's a unique business um, tool, I guess, is the best way I can describe it because of one of the unique expenses in our business. Our number one cost for an owner-operator is fuel, always. For fleets, it can be either be number one or number two, depending on the price of fuel, and that's because wages for drivers. Roughly, if fuel is below $4 a gallon, Wages are going to be the number one cost for a fleet. Fuel will be number two. Fuel goes above $4 a gallon. In many fleets, it's going to become the number one cost, and wages will become number two. It's a huge part of our cost, and here's why it's different than most businesses. It is wildly volatile. It changes daily throughout the day. And it can have wild swings. In my time in this industry, I'm 
positive there was some point way back when that I paid in the 60 some cents a gallon for fuel. 80 cents was common for a long time. We've also seen $6 fuel. And we've seen swings of multiple dollars in months sometimes or even weeks in the worst case. When we have a natural disaster, a hurricane takes out a, a um uh, the place where they make fuel. What the hell's the name of it? Uh, it must be Friday. Refineries. So because that cost is so volatile, if you are doing contract freight for a year, let's say. So here's why we have fuel surcharges. I go to a shipper. I say, Mr. Shipper, I understand that you ship this load every Wednesday to the same place. I can have a truck here every Wednesday to haul it. And because, and, and I'll sign a contract for a year at this rate. That's a good thing for both of us. But I can't do that, or I would be an idiot to do that. And so would the shipper if we don't include a fuel surcharge in the contract. And the contract will spell out how we calculate the fuel surcharge and when. I'm going to use a typical scenario, but we can negotiate any fuel surcharge agreement we can work out with a the shipper. There are no rules. This is just another part of negotiating contract freight that you have to understand. And if you only use the spot market, you probably don't understand this. So now I say, here is my rate that I will hold for a year, plus a fuel surcharge calculated like this. Because I, if, if fuel goes up 40 cents next month, I can't haul for this rate. But we don't want to have to come back and renegotiate a rate every time fuel prices change. So we just put a fuel surcharge in that does it automatically for us every week. We'll say on Tuesday, we'll check the national average or regional average or whatever we want to negotiate. We're going to use six miles to the gallon as the base fuel mileage. We're going to use $1.25 as the base fuel price. And here's our fuel surcharge calculation. So every Tuesday, we run the numbers, and this is the rate for this week, the base rate, the line haul rate, plus this week's fuel surcharge. Everybody's protected from fluctuating fuel prices now. If the price goes down, the shipper gets to move his goods a little cheaper. If the price goes up, he's going to have to pay more. Our fuel gets covered. That's how fuel surcharge works that's why we only use it on a contract freight, but it absolutely impacts the spot market. If, the, if, if for some reason the fuel surcharge on contract rates went away today, spot market rates would drop dramatically tomorrow. I promise you, it always works that way. It has to work that way. So every truck on the road gets the advantage when fuel prices change, you should be protected from those fluctuations. If the calculation uses six miles to the gallon and you get six miles to the gallon, exactly, then your profit should vary only tiny, tiny amounts, even if fuel costs 
double. And even if all of your freight comes from the spot market. Now, are there some exceptions? Of course, because we have people on the spot market who don't negotiate good rates. They don't know how. They don't understand the rate. They don't understand the fuel price and how it's affecting their operation. And yes, they may negotiate a rate and somebody will go, oh, that can't have fuel surcharge in it. Well, yeah, it actually does. It's the base rate that got lowered because of poor negotiations or no relationships or whatever. All those other reasons you get screwed by the broker, which are all your fault, by the way, not the brokers. It's your fault. And even if it's not, take responsibility anyway and make it your fault because that's the only way you can do something about it. So I'll be open for questions on fuel surcharge. If I Hopefully I explained that right. It absolutely impacts spot market prices. Let's, um, let me check on speakers here. There's Joel. So I believe we have all of our speakers in here now. We've got Joel, Henry, uh, David is here with us. Um, I haven't seen a request from Matt yet. Uh, Matt, if you want to jump in, Jamie. All right, we're good. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set things up here before I bring the guest in, though. Last week, I asked uh, Joel and Henry and Jamie to kind of give us their background. And, you know, they, they told us stuff. They didn't really tell you the right stuff, the good stuff. So I'm going to brag on them since they didn't want to brag on themselves. I call these guys the fuel mileage superstars. And there's, there's more. There's a, a group that's on Facebook that, you know, has been around. We've been a part of, and all of these guys are a part of. And there's a lot of guys in there killing it on fuel economy these days. We have people who specialize in certain truck platforms. Jamie's the Mac guy. Henry's the Freightliner guy. Um, Joel is the Volvo guy. They know those platforms in and out. We have people who are, are kind of experts on certain types of freight and trailers, and they're better at, you know, really tweaking fuel economy on those. Um, Matt's running older equipment, old pre-emission equipment and getting crazy fuel economy out of it. So we've put together a team of people that can really, really help everybody in fuel economy. I've been helping people on fuel economy for 30 years, and I'm pretty good at it. I used to think I was the best at it. I know it's a little egotistical, but I couldn't find anybody else in the country who seemed to know as much as I did. What I didn't realize was Joel and I were on parallel universe tracks. Um, we lived about two hours away from each other. We've been in the industry virtually the exact same time frame, and we both started working on fuel economy about the same time when fuel was under a buck a gallon and everybody thought we were insane. Um, I now realize I'm not the smartest guy in the country on fuel mileage anymore, but I know a lot, a lot. But Joel has introduced engine architecture to us, which is we're going to talk about that first thing this morning. I want to get some some thoughts out on that and uh, get some thoughts from David on that as well. New perspective on that. that that's a, it, it's become a game changer in fuel economy. It's a big thing that I didn't understand two years ago or three years ago. Uh, so I'm not going to be the only guy to answer fuel questions like I did for years. I, we have a team of superstars. These guys are really, really good at this stuff. Um, and they didn't want to brag on their, themselves, so I'm doing it. it that, this applies to all of these guys. They live and breathe this stuff, and they have for years. 
There's a lot of great information here. So here's what I'm going to do now. Um, Joel, are you with me? I am here. All right. Um, David, are you here with me? David, you got to unmute your mic, David. I'm here. There we go. All right. Hey, welcome. Hey. Good to hear from you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. you, you there? Glad to be there here. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah sorry yeah. about the mix up this morning. That was my fault. I, yeah. You, you hearing us? Yeah, I got oh, you, Kim. <laughs> I don't think David's hearing me. Okay, good. Good. All right. So, David, um, I know you don't like to brag on yourself either. I've asked you many times to describe what you do. I'm going to ask you, like, you do a lot of stuff, more than anybody I know. Um, but the one thing I want to talk about today is your car building. You got any projects going on right now? What are you building? Actually, I got a new project, um, 68 Chevrolet pickup. I mean, most everybody knows that I really come from a racing background. I race things all my life. And uh, I'm 59 years old, still pretty competitive. And all of a sudden, my 13-year-old son decides he wants to race now. Oh, so nice. We've gotten pretty heavy into the auto racing. He's a he's a dirt late model guy. Uh, he's pretty good for 13-year-old kid. Uh, he can actually put a whooping on his daddy. So <laughs> I guess that means he's Excellent. good. Um, but I'm, nice. Nice. I just I gotta it up, you know. I, I mean, yeah. you know, the racing drives my filter business for me because yeah, right, right. It, it makes me think, you know, um, it makes me think how to get faster, whatever I'm driving. And then in return, it, it keeps me motivated to build new product, uh, whether it's filters or race car parts or hot rods or whatever. There you go. So, for the people who don't know, I give you a better introduction. David Counts is the uh, founder and CEO of Fleet Air Filter, among several other businesses. Um, the inventor of it, it's an awesome product for fuel economy and maintenance costs and all kinds of things. We've been um, working with David for a long, long time now. We love the product. Here's what I want you to do, David. You, you build engines from the ground up, right? Yes, I do. You completely understand everything that's going on in an internal combustion engine. I, I mean that at a really, really deep level. Um, Joel has introduced something new to us about fuel economy, and it has to do completely with the internal architecture of the engine, primarily with, with stroke and rod length and um, I'm going to let Joel explain it to you, and I want you two to just have a conversation about this because sure. I, I think you can bring a lot. At gas and diesel engines, really, when it comes to the architecture, we're talking about the same stuff, connecting rods. We may use different strategies around this, but but you have such a deep understanding of internal combustion engines. I want to get your take on some of this. So this is really probably – for me, because I've been working on fuel economy so long, the biggest change in my thinking about specking trucks in, in well over a decade. Nothing else has made me think anywhere near differently as this topic has, and I'm still trying to get my head around it. I, I understand it in my head. I don't understand it enough yet to teach it. I need to take some quiet time, which I haven't had in a while, 
and maybe even sit down with Joel and, you know, really dig deep into this so that I, I get it and internalize it. I may even get a little bit of that today. That's what I'm hoping when you two start talking about that, this things might click. So how does that sound? Sure. The, uh, so Joel, uh, what do you think? Uh, that sounds good to me. So I'm going to turn it over to you. You, you do a great job of, you know, starting at the beginning and explaining this whole thing. So I'm going to sit back. This is another thing I like about spaces. I'm just going to sit back and listen. I'm a, I'm a participant here. You guys have the floor. So go ahead. Okay. So in general, what we're talking about is uh, downspeeding. And when we say downsped or downspeeding, we're referring to piston speed. And just like car engines in the 60s when we went to what they were referring to as a modern sm small block v8 uh, with lower piston speeds therefore more efficient you had less strokes per mile of driving um, we're, we're seeing that same type of revolution with some of the manufacturers on the diesel engine side um, volvo has really taken this to an extreme so when I look at a heavy-duty diesel engine, the first thing I want to look at is what I consider the foundation, and that is the crankshaft. And what Volvo does a little bit different, so we're a 13-liter engine, so we're a little more compact. We're not as long as some of our big block brethren out there. So in general, the shorter you can keep your crankshaft, you know, the, the, the stiffer or the more durable it is uh, in general. Um, in addition, instead of going with very long stroke that a lot of the diesel engines uh, tend to do, they went with shorter stroke, so we have more journal overlap in that crankshaft. We have significantly more journal overlap, and that further helps to stiffen the foundation and make it stronger. When you look at the fastening bolts for the flywheel on the back of the D13, there's 14 of them back there for clamping force on that flange on the, on the crankshaft. Typically, a diesel engine will have 10 or 12. Some even have eight. So just to give you a sense of how heavy-duty them rotating internals are. So they maximized the, the journal and rod, um, uh, the main and rod bearing area. So... Typically, when you look at a D13 crankshaft, we are going to have more bearing area for both the rods and the mains. And when you look at our connecting rods, they are typically longer and beefier. So we are a short stroke engine with a longer connecting rod, which gives you less lean or side loading or thrust into the cylinder wall. Uh, especially when you're under load, that becomes important. What it also does is it gives us a lower, more consistent piston speed throughout the stroke. We're very consistent because of that angle. We've got very little angle on the rod. It's uh, it's not straight up and down, but it's it's damn close to being straight up and down. So this helps with wear, and, and it really you know reduces those strokes per mile going down the road. So... <laughs> Rod angle has a tendency to wear the piston a lot. Yeah. yeah. So whether it's you know whether it's the skirt or whether it's the top ring land or or whatever, um, I see that in some of the engines that we do. Yeah. So you know, think, thinking about a diesel compared to like the gas burner, I mean, the functions are the same pretty much. Yes. Um, where I, I'm I'm big on cubic inch. 
Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like big cubic inch motors mm -hmm. because of torque mm -hmm. and, and the horsepower at that point, we don't have to turn as hard to get the horsepower that we're looking for. So uh, what we're, what we're looking at and, and I, and I hear what you're saying, and this is something Volvo kind of struggled with early on with the VGT version of their 13 liter. You know, it, it's the, the torque and horsepower and the perception that displacement is always better in a heavy duty application. So a couple of things you really have to keep in mind here is that when we do get to bigger displacement, a lot of times we do that by adding stroke, uh, our journal overlaps on the crankshaft start to get a little, a little on the thin side, right? Because, because we have less area to actually overlap the journal because we're, we're, we have longer stroke in the crankshaft. So that's something that Excellent. in a heavy-duty diesel engine you have, to, you have to be very, very careful of. Uh, so the, the – the other way that we kind of overcame that, that issue, and there's two advantages when you have displacement and when you have long stroke and short rods, you do have more variation of the piston speed up and down in the cylinder, um, and you have fast acceleration away from top dead center, and it makes that engine feel very responsive with that fast acceleration away from top dead center, right? A lot of race cars will have that shorter uh, stroke or longer stroke in that rod geometry to get that fast acceleration away from top dead center, so it, it, it feels better but think about that great big bore that that big diesel engine has and that faster acceleration to bottom dead center and smacking that crankshaft that has less journal overlap you know things start to get real funky when you really start to work the hell out of that engine and you start to pull hard you get a lot of uh, movement in the crankshaft a lot of flex and there's, there's a particular name for it and i can't recall it right off the top of my head but it starts you know, vibrations, and there's there's a lot of problem with that. So several of the engine manufacturers, and the three that I can think of right offhand are, are Volvo, Detroit, and the new International, I believe, and I haven't seen the exact specs on that, but I believe they've all kind of went to this kind of a little bit shorter stroke, a longer rod to really, you know, help the bottom end stay stiff and strong and to get more consistent piston speed, which has to help with emissions, I, I would assume as well, because we're not, we're not dealing with a lot of variation throughout the stroke either. Um, the way Volvo specifically had overcome the, the, the kind of lackluster feel that the D13 VGT had is with turbo compounding. So when we put a blowdown turbine on, we're recovering the heat out of the exhaust and we're transmitting that mechanically right back to the flywheel in a 360 degree rotation with gearing in the blowdown turbine that really leverages the benefits at very low RPM. So we, we kind of recover that feel of the, the fast acceleration of the rod, but we're doing it in a, in a different way. And we are applying torque in a 360-degree fashion, which really helps to smooth out any firing order vibrations that may kind of work their way down the crankshaft. Um, it's kind of like an electric motor. We're, we're kind of just smoothing everything out. As such, the engine runs down sub-1,000 RPM, pulling 80,000 pounds, vibration-free. Um, so... We've got a lot of advantages in regards to the, the strength of the bottom end and, 
and how we set up our rods. Now, the drawback, obviously, is you've got this great big crankshaft. You've got these great big rods. When you start to spin them faster and you've got all this bearing area, you start to lose efficiency. You know, you got a lot of rotating mass, and the faster you spin it, the less efficient that becomes, right? So right. with the Volvo, it becomes very imperative that we really, really – gear it correctly to keep the RPM or the piston speed down low so we're not trying to really rotate the hell out of this great big crankshaft and, and lose some efficiency that we designed the engine for by running it at low RPM. Yeah, see, like with the, just say the LS motor stuff that we do, I do a lot of like the LS427 stuff. Mm-hmm. So we run lightweight cranks and rods, and I mean, mm-hmm. I've actually got a motor, got titanium rods in it. Mm-hmm. The rotating assembly, we don't want it very heavy. Mm-hmm. We want light weight. Correct. Because at that that point, when you're on the gas, it accelerates quicker. And when you're yes. off the gas, it it, it it actually woes the car up yeah. without having to use as much brake. Right. And, and, of course, that's the difference in the, the diesel world versus the gas world and, and just saying what we do. Now, I mean, I build stock motors, too, but. So I, I don't build a lot of diesel motors. I build a lot of gas. Something motors. that's extremely interesting to me that you just said. You know, it you get that RPM spinning up, and when you let off the gas, it slows the car down. That's exactly what you don't want in a commercial truck. You want to be able to use that momentum and and use that inertia to travel down the road without having to fuel it. So when we are spinning that engine extremely low. We are also then reducing our moments of inertia while we're out on the road, and it allows that truck to really, really leverage the speed and the weight without having to fuel it, without having all that parasitic drag to slow us back down. So right. kind of opposite of, of the racing mentality, I, I, I get it, but as a racer, when I mean, you, you should be able to see exactly what's happening there and how it applies to efficiency rather than you know, getting me fast down the road. Now, I will tell you, that being said, Packard, Cummins, uh, some of the earlier international engines, they tried to go with lighter weight internals. That way, if they are spinning the engine a little faster, those engines are more comfortable and more efficient at higher RPM, but you have more strokes per mile and you just can't overcome that in terms of efficiency and you're going to have more moments of inertia because of the higher piston speed in the engine is is in terms of you know the driver trying to be easy on the pedal it makes it much more difficult to do so would you say that like the heavier weight assembly like in a diesel how much would you say that affects the torque of the engine there's, it's most of in a diesel engine. The, the torque is obviously torque is a force applied at a distance, and that is going to be heavily influenced by the throws on the crankshaft. Now, mm-hmm. the rotating assembly itself, the flywheel weight, the bearing area, the thrust loading of the piston—that's all going to impact torque to a certain degree. Uh, not nearly as much, obviously, as the throw on the crank. That's going to be your primary factor on torque. The other way that you know Volvo tries to add the torque back in, it's it's boost, it's it's through fuel injection timing and whatnot, and it's also through that turbo compounding unit. Uh, with the TC unit, you're essentially adding displacement to the engine without having any of the 
parasitic drag associated with the larger displacement. So the bigger the displacement, the bigger the crankshaft, the bigger the pistons at any given RPM, it requires more horsepower to turn that engine. And it, it's fairly significant, a 13-liter versus a 15-liter, you know, all engineering being equal. It's 8 to 10 horsepower more to turn that engine just going down the road because of that bigger displacement. So if you can get the horsepower and torque out of the smaller displacement engine with the same or better durability um, at reduced piston speed, your efficiency is, has to be better. Um, oh, it, it, absolutely. It's definitely. Yeah, it's definitely going to improve. Um, in the past, our thinking always was there's no way to get that that torque and that that performance that you know the the driver craves out of the smaller displacement engines. And you know, back in the day, that was true. We couldn't do it with an 11 or a 12 or a 13 liter engine. Today, we absolutely can for the majority of duty cycles. It's uh, you know up to 600 horsepower. It's not much of a problem to uh, to to get that type of performance that the that the driver craves out of a 13 liter, uh, pretty simple actually. And when you start to look at, you think about a, a commercial vehicle is constrained by weight limits on the front axle, right? So if you have right. a 15 liter engine, you know with a bigger block, physically everything's bigger. You've got to trim weight on that to make it manageable out on the highway. And a lot of times that happens in the crankshaft, unfortunately. Now we can take a little bit off the crank. You know, let's lighten this thing up. Let's take a little bit out of the rods. Let's lighten this thing up. Those, to me, are the most important parts of the engine in a heavy-duty diesel that you don't really want to lighten up. So in, in my mind, it's better to start with a little bit smaller displacement and then figure out how to get the, the power and torque at the low piston speed. And, and that's something that Volvo has done very, very well. So what's, what's your take on horsepower versus fuel mileage? So, I, I mean, okay, then we got a truck that makes 600 horsepower. You know, well, I'll, I'll here's your complaints about people saying, well, you know, my 900 horsepower truck, you know, fuel mileage. And then I hear, guys, well, here's it does, you know. Yeah, <laughs> here's the thing. So has always been our limiting factor. Um, in the past, we always just put a whole lot of horsepower to a any particular spec in order to keep it in top gear. And when we're keeping in top gear, what are we doing? We're keeping the RPM or the piston speed low at higher speeds, trying to help to increase the efficiency. So today, with like the Volvo iTorque spec, what we have, we have the ability to run in three different gears at highway speed because we have 38 to 1 reduction in low gear, and I can use a 2.16 rear axle ratio with an overdrive transmission. So I've got excellent startability because of the super deep reduction. Then I've got three gears to choose from at highway speed, and because the Volvo is set up to produce horsepower, at very low RPM. Now, as a driver, you know what horsepower is. It's torque times RPM divided by 52.52, right? That's mm -hmm. horsepower. So I can drive down the road at 65 mile an hour in overdrive at 990 RPM when I'm light, which is essentially moderating my horsepower to match the requirements of the load. 
if I'm heavy, I can run it in direct at 1100. And if I'm really pulling heavy into hills, now I can run an underdrive at 65 at about 1400 RPM, right at the right at the top of peak horsepower. And I have torque multiplication working in the transmission at highway speed. So it pulls very, very nice. The problem we always ran into in the past is you never had that flexibility because we didn't have enough reduction in the transmission. So you always either had an overdrive or a direct drive. You had the gear that would match that to keep you in that top gear, and then it was always all about horsepower. Pour the horsepower to it to keep it in top gear. It, it worked when you didn't have any other choice. Now that we have powertrains where we have multiple gears at highway speed, that's kind of an antiquated way to go about things, and it certainly is not the most efficient way to go about things. Now we can precisely match the horsepower requirement with the demand on the road as a driver. So we're not over-fueling the engine. We're not under-fueling the engine. We're, we're matching things up just about perfect. And it, it's really made a huge difference in fuel efficiency. Yeah, well, we're just looking for the sweet spot, basically. Uh, essentially, yeah. there, I, I always have a problem with the word sweet spot. It's a range. Yeah. You know, it's always a range. There's never one. But you can never say about a truck, this thing will get the best fuel mileage at 1,100 RPM. That may be true in certain conditions. Every diesel engine can operate effectively in a range, and you need to be able to adapt to that full range. Just like if I had, like I came back from Rhode Island with 3,500 pounds in the trailer. I was very, very light. If I would have had a direct drive truck and tried to run 67 mile an hour, I would have been running, let's say, 12 or 1,300 RPM, depending on the gear ratio. I have very high piston speed, um, and... I'm only putting just a little bit of fuel in in each stroke so the combustion process doesn't get real hot. And I'm pumping a lot of air through there. Now I'm making soot because I'm not heating up the combustion process. And I'm not holding heat in the emission system either because my piston speed's too high for my duty cycle. Now I can put it into overdrive, slow that down 300 or so RPM. I'm putting more fuel in for fewer strokes, and I'm pumping less air through the engine to cool things off. Hotter combustion means less particulate, means more heat in the emission system, which makes it more durable and more effective. And with a turbo-compounded engine, I'm recovering that heat and putting it right back to the flywheel. Yeah, that's, that's amazing that, that the, the new engines that are out, that you can make all the power in the world, it seems like, and also you can get pretty decent fuel mileage now versus what they were, what, you know, five years ago? Yeah, yeah, even even yeah. five years ago, yes. you know, it, it's the gearing really to take advantage of what they can actually do with the engine nowadays is what's really making the difference and really understanding that connection between piston speed, fuel efficiency, and emission system durability you know running that 13 or 1400 rpm in direct drive with a light load is you're not doing your emission system any favor sure you're slightly more efficient in the transmission in direct drive but you can't look at the transmission and the engine as separate components you have to take a holistic look bold them both together and say okay i'm slightly more efficient because i'm indirect in the transmission but now my piston speeds up, and that more than offsets the efficiency I gained in the transmission. So 
you know, running in direct drive like a lot of people want to do, that's not necessarily the best answer for most situations. Overdrive can be an extremely effective tool in increasing fuel efficiency under light and moderate loads, and it can really, really help emission system durability. Hey, Joel, I, I am, I, I am going to jump in. This has been a great conversation, by the way. David, I knew you would appreciate this, even though you use these same concepts to achieve something completely different. It's the same concept. So I knew you would understand once Joel explained it to you why we were taking this approach with diesel engines. Um, Let's see. So go ahead. Like like my concept on on race motors, you know, um, where Joel's saying, you know, he's talking about rotating assembly weight and all that. You know, of course, theirs is a lot heavier than ours. I mean, our crankshaft's 38 pounds. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, one rod and one piston weighs 38 pounds of diesel. (laughs) But, but, I mean, it just shows the concept difference, you know. But the the problem that we fight the most is that when we run a, a lighter rotating assembly, the throttle response is so quick that sometimes it's hard to get the tire to actually hook up where to drive off the corner. Right. So, you know, yeah. What, what yeah, well, we deal with that with the diesels because of all the torque. Right. What we're doing now, like with a lot of our stuff, you know, we're often computer control motors and we use dominator systems and stuff like that in them. So we've actually went in and we're taking pedal out of it. So I'm putting yes. ramping my pedal to where it's slower. <laughs> yes. And it actually gives it. To- <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. Now we're doing something very similar. It's called dynamic torque. And you can order a Volvo with dynamic torque or straight torque. And when you order it with straight torque, all the things that you just described become problematic. We get we get um, increased drivetrain wear, you get increased tire wear, you get increased, increased clutch wear because that full 1,900 pound-feet of torque is available at 900 RPM the second you tap that throttle. Bam, you got it. You know, and that, that right. becomes very problematic in terms of efficiency and maintenance. It, it, it just is. So with dynamic torque, what the truck is doing, it's sense and weight, it's sense and grade, and then it understands, okay, we only need to be a 1,330-pound-foot torque engine right now, or we need to be 1,500 pound-feet. And it constantly monitors that torque requirement that it's going to allow to go to the pedal based on load and grade. The second you're on grade, regardless of how much you weigh, you got the full 1,900 pounds after you're over a certain percentage of grade, so it, it feels strong to the driver and he's not pissed off this thing ain't going up a hill. But you, you know you always have to, you always have to balance that, right? I mean, ideally you would probably oh, yeah. bring it in a little slower than than what we do now. But uh, the same concept applies. It's it's things respond so fast now, and the electronics are so good. You really have to manage that pedal, and whether it's direct management of the ramp rate of the pedal or we're managing torque based on weight and grade. Either way, we we kind of get to the same same uh, conclusion. Yeah. Great stuff. Hey, uh, real quick, Joel, you know, I, I said earlier, you and I were at kind of like parallel universes, and I, I know you spent at least as much time, probably more, sitting around many, many years saying, I could spec a better truck if I had a better transmission. <laughs> I'll tell you. It, what, it, 
It's not the engine that really changed to make this possible. It was Volvo building a transmission. They had that 14 speed in Europe, and I was down in a meeting with the engineers, and the guy says, hey, you want to try a 14 speed? I was like, holy shit, <laughs> bring that thing over. Yeah. Because I saw that it had 38 to 1 reduction, and I'm like, oh, my God, think what we could do with this thing. So, yeah, I was throwing right. a party when they decided to let me run that 14 speed. I thought that that's just that, awesome. We. I can remember being at, at Western Truck Parts, and they did, you know, they built our signature truck transmission. And I said, can we just build a new transmission? Can, can we get, can you get me this? And it, it just wasn't practical. So, I mean, it, it's something else that I think we've really got as an industry, we have to be careful of. So, you know, in the past, we always talked about a specific rear axle ratio or transmission combination kind of applying across the board because essentially they did. You could only run in one gear. You know, none of the transmissions right, right. had. So, you know, uh, he had a caller earlier in the week that went from 355 to 264 and he's running in direct and he's a heavy haul guy. And when he was on grade, the performance wasn't what anybody had expected. You got to remember, you can multiply torque in a transmission, but you're not multiplying horsepower. Horsepower ultimately determines how fast you get up the hill. You know, torque will tell you how big the load can be. Horsepower is going to tell you how fast you're going to get up there. And the problem when we, when we talk about direct drive, direct drive can be extremely efficient in a very narrow operating range. And generally, it's on the slower speed side and moderate weight. So, so let me stop you there because that's why it worked so well for me for so yeah, many years. Yeah. I drove 57 yeah. miles yeah. an hour and pulled FedEx freight. Why they use direct drive in Europe, slower truck. Right. And so your, your right. horsepower demand isn't near as high. But the other thing, you know, they talked about, oh, how can we get this truck to perform a little better? When you take that 264 and you look at the steps in a 13 or an 18 speed, the step is from direct, it's 1.7, 1.38. And if you start doing the math on that, when he drops one gear with a 264, he's in underdrive, and he's only equivalent to a 308 where he was at 355 before. So you can start to see why he was struggling to pull the hill. He had more RPM with the 355, and he was in direct. Now his final overall ratio is 308, and he's in a less efficient gear, and the problem only gets worse the deeper he gets into the gearbox. So when you have very high horsepower demand, you're better off to get that ratio right in the axle to keep you in the more efficient gear in the old manual transmission. Honestly, right. with his 355, when you think about this, he talked about he had some startability issues that he didn't see as a big deal. But, you know, he installed the truck three times in three weeks, where in 13 years he hadn't stalled the truck. So there was a little bit of an issue in terms of startability. The thing that he's missing and what he's probably going to learn the hard way here is now you're multiplying torque in the transmission a lot more often and you are going to have clutch wear, you're going to have universal joints wear, you're going to have carrier bearings wear, input shafts on the rear ends are going to wear. And if you don't upgrade the drive shaft to accommodate for that, 
The guys at Dana tell me it's like 30% short in life cycle, and anything you're going to gain in fuel efficiency, you're going to lose by having to replace that driveline prematurely and possibly the clutch. So you've got to be very, very careful about gearing a truck to run in direct. There are absolutely 100% times when it makes sense, typically on flat ground, typically when... 30% of your loads are under 60,000 pounds gross combination vehicle weight and typically below 62 mile an hour. If you meet those three criteria, direct drive makes a lot of sense. You need yeah. the flexibility well, of overdrive. Hey. If you have variation in your duty cycle and heavier weights, you want to be able to get the ratio in the rear end to keep you indirect when you're pulling hard in the transmission. It's just something to consider. Excellent stuff. I'm going to jump in now because this is what happens when you wind up Joel and push his button. He could do this for the rest of the day. Um, and I love it. And David, you were awesome to give us a different perspective. But I think people's brains need a break. That's deep stuff. It's hard. It's a lot to think about. Great stuff, though. So I'm glad we did that. Yeah, I want to lighten it up a little bit and give people a reason to really pay attention to this kind of stuff and focus on it. It came up on my live show this morning, so I, I'm thinking about it. Um, I came up with something. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing. I was at my first Landstar BCO days as a speaker there, and it was still early in my speaking career, so I was nervous and all freaked out, and it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't sleep, so I got up in the hotel and started writing. And I came up with what I called the million-dollar idea for an owner-operator. And, and here's what it is. that you can. I, I will prove the numbers over and over. Right now, we're in a place where the numbers actually work again. They don't always work exactly the way I designed it, but they work now because of fuel prices. And here was the idea. I said, if you are going to have a 30-year career as an owner-operator, and most of us, if we make it through the first couple of years, we're probably going to have a 20 to 30 year career as an owner operator. So all you would have to do, my claim, and it's absolutely true, all you would have to do to put a million dollars in your retirement account during your career was whatever fuel economy you're getting right now, work to get one more mile per gallon. If you're getting 5.5, we can get you to 6.5. And with that savings, you would invest it into an S&P 500 mutual fund every month. And in 30 years, you would have a million or more dollars. That's it. That's all you had to do. So I showed people where you don't have to change your lifestyle. You don't have to sacrifice anything except maybe how fast you're driving all the time. You need to make some investments in fuel economy and understand it. And then you need to calculate your savings and invest it. And I can have you retire as a millionaire being a single truck owner operator. That's still true today. It's absolutely true with the prices today. It works. The math comes out to almost exactly a million dollars at today's fuel price. Nice. Uh, that should get people interested in this. That's why we do what we do. That's why we do the show. That's why you and I, well, honestly, you and I originally did this all for selfish reasons, right? <laughs> we didn't care about anybody else. We just realized this is how we make more money. Yeah, the, the thing that you just always have to keep in mind is that 
fuel efficiency goes directly to the bottom line and revenue is a top line number and you don't keep all your revenue. And obviously everybody has different ratios of what they keep. So you just always have to keep that in mind. Anytime you save money on fuel, it goes directly to the bottom line. And and there's a good point. Let me clarify that for people based on how I was just describing it. If I if you save one mile per gallon, we can calculate the savings. One hundred percent of that can go to your retirement account and your lifestyle doesn't change. Correct. But if you got a raise in rate and you tried to apply a hundred percent of it to your retirement account, your financial situation would change. You would have less money to spend at home now. Correct. That's a, a really good point that it's hard to get people to understand that. They think if I slow down, I'll make less money. You might, might, you might not do. Mm -hmm. I know people who have slowed down 10 miles an hour and got the exact same number of paid miles that year that they did the year before going 10 miles an hour faster. Uh, that's, that's not unusual. Uh, my brother sees that all the time right. in his fleet. What happens uh, when a guy can run faster and he's not thinking about things, you take breaks more often. It, it, you just do. Yep. Um, your stress, your or, stress level's a little higher and you don't realize it. And uh, you just you tend to stop more often. Or you get to your delivery and you can't deliver anyway for an hour or two hours Correct. because you had an appointment. Now you're going to sit there and Correct. idle. Correct. Yes, absolutely. And I catch a lot of heat over that when I'm doing my furniture drops because I have to schedule each one of those individually. And, you know, furniture stores keep bankers hours. They're, they don't open up early. Yeah, They're right. not open late. And so 90% right. of the time, it does me absolutely no good to run 75 mile an hour. I can do everything I need to do at 57. And, you know, people really jump my shit. Oh, you're only running 50. It makes business sense to do that <laughs> speed is a tool yes the tool correct and it can be used yes both ways. Now, there are times when it absolutely makes sense to run 75 mile an hour it, there, there are those sure. times go do it you, you try to limit that the best you can and as an owner operator if you're in control of your own dispatch i mean i go out of my way to not put myself in that position you know, I, I'll catch a lot of heat about, oh, you're only running light loads. Well, if I got two loads that are paying exactly the same and one's 3,500 pounds, one's 47,000, why in the hell would I take that heavy load? Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. All right. Hey, we're going to we're gonna open this up. we got a bunch of other speakers on. So uh, let me see. TJ, looks like you're up first. Jump in here and just say good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I, my question for Joel was uh, – does, does he sell his trucks after he's done testing them to get to upgrade each year? Or no, what, do you, what do you do with your, your old trucks? He's like UPS. He disguises <laughs> them and then, and then puts them in a junkyard so nobody can get them. Um, oh, yeah. He my brother, when we were doing testing through there, there were some of the stuff that was all pre-production stuff that we could not sell. Um, he does sell trucks out of his fleet that have similar specs to mine. I'm new enough with my testing and consulting business that I have not went through a full trade cycle yet. Um, but most likely, uh, depending on, you know, what the freight market is. And I've got a uh, stepson that wants to come on board here. I was thinking maybe I'll have another truck and run this one out a little bit longer. But eventually, yeah, I'll most likely sell them. Oh, okay. And then what? Wh just a question on the year. 
with Volvo. Uh, I have a bunch of 2020s, and forgive me for not knowing as much about them as I should, but was there cha any changes between the year-making model of 2020, like the VNLs, um, to versus the 2023? So, Is that when we did big changes? So on the cab, it's all the same. The interior features are the same. The engines have been um, updated. So 2018, 19, 20, uh, versus, uh, I think 2223 is where we we got the bigger turbo on the TC. We got higher compression ratio, improved fuel injection. We got a different gear ratio on the blowdown turbine. Uh, we had significant upgrades, and it's about a six to seven percent increase in efficiency just on the engine upgrades alone. Got it. Okay. Um, and then the transmission, has that been the same for how many well, years, the, the, the D12 transmission? No, we, we have the, the iShift, the 12-speed. Um, there are different generations of that. Generally, it is around how fast it shifts and the shift logics that are available for it. Um, every three or four years, we, we get a pretty nice upgrade in shift quality and shift logic. So... Um, I don't remember the the nomenclature on, on the generations right off the top of my head. That's something I'd have to look up. But there are definitely differences from, you know, when it first came in till now. There's some pretty significant differences with the 12-speed. And, of course, we have the 13- and 14-speed iShifts now. Hey, hey, you know what's coming in? in I, I'm, I'm positive it has to be being worked on already. Uh, I'm just wondering when we're going to see some AI technology in our um, and transmission. I'm sure it's coming. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think it will be a good thing. I think that's one of the real uses of AI that could be amazing mm -hmm. for us. I'm, I'm already hey. working on, we're already working on an AI that will, will analyze all 6 million of our fuel tickets and fuel gauges and start telling us stuff. Nice. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. Hey, one one more question for Joel. One more question for Joel, and then I'll, mm -hmm. I'll go back off. But uh, what do you have? You ever shared your spec with Cleats, or are you willing to share it? Or, or where does it stand with Volvo? Spec is out there. Volvo actually gave it an official name. It's called iTorque, and you can walk into any Volvo dealership and ask for the iTorque spec, and you're going to get essentially what I have. You can get it as a six by four or six by two. You can get it with a 13-speed standard, 14-speed optional. But they just need to know you want an iTorque. Got it. So iTorque. And then um, and that spec, just I know you know the country. So California to to Texas and it that, works. Like I-10, I-40, it, it that works. spec is fine at 80,000 pounds. works everywhere because you can run in any of the top three gears at highway speed. So whether you're 5,000 pounds, 80,000 pounds on the flat, you know, going over Donner doesn't make any difference. It works just fine. Oh, excellent. Okay, cool. That's all I got. Thanks awesome. a lot, man. Thanks. Appreciate the all space. Right. Sure. Great stuff. Here, here's what we're going to do now. We're, um, I'm, I'm going to go through the speakers and let them jump in. David, I'm going to come back to you, and I want to talk about fleet air filters and fuel mileage specifically. Then we're going to go open it up to anybody with questions. So um, if you're just out there right now, you're not one of our speakers, and you've got a question, go ahead and request, and I'll bring you in so everybody's here. Uh, it looks like, uh, Matt, you're up next. What do you got today? Yeah, good afternoon, everybody. Um, 
Hey, oh, hey, yes. let's do this with let's do this with the speakers. So, Matt, just give everybody a quick rundown. Your just quick truck specs and your current thirty day fuel economy or lifetime, whatever one you want to give. Yep, it's uh well. <laughs> I got a Johnny Cash truck. I built it one piece at a time. There you go. Uh, 2002 truck, but 99 uh, 2WS cat, uh, 13 speed, 253 rear end ratio. And I still run a 6x4. I ran a 6x2 in the past. And like Joel has said, the home conversions wasn't impressed. There's just too many issues. I, I think, you know, a uh, factory built 6x2 is the only way to go. I agree. So if I was going new, there's no question on a six by two. My 30 day, I believe is just shy of eight and a half, 8.49. And like my lifetime on this truck, which is 1.1 million miles is seven, eight. Got it. Good stuff. How many people have a million plus miles tracked for fuel economy on every tank? Uh, Steve Crone, <laughs> we, I, I know a handful. <laughs> we, well, we, I know all of them that, that use our app because I can go in and see who's been tracking for a million plus miles. You're right. It's a handful. It's pretty impressive too. When you see it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I pull reefer and Minnesota to Florida. And yeah. And that was, you guys were just talking about people slowing down and then the time management end of it. Just this week, I had a guy load in the dock right next to me in Minnesota, and they had an extra load, so he's going to the exact same place I am. He must have passed me four <laughs> or five times a day on the way down. Oh, I pull into man. the delivery in Florida. Guess who's in front of me checking in at the guard shack? No way. <laughs> Unbelievable. See, you know, you know what, Matt, you didn't gain two minutes on me. You know what I would love to be able to do, and we can't because none of these people ever have numbers and they wouldn't give it to us. I would love to just show the difference in profit between your run and his. Yep. Oh, yeah. I, you know, obviously don't know, but it was it's 379P, which, you know, I'm not against them. That's, I own three of them. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, I'm assuming he's a five-point-something. Well, here's, guy. here's something. I, if, if if my million-mile idea sunk in with anybody, here's a kicker. Remember, all we need to do to retire with a million dollars, we don't have to sacrifice anything. We don't have to change our lifestyle. We just need to get one more mile per gallon. What happens if you take a non-aerodynamic body off of a chassis and put an aerodynamic body on it? Don't change anything else. You get one more mile per gallon. Yeah. Driving around in that classic can cost you a million dollars at retirement. Absolutely. You just got to think about that. And if you think about it and say, good, I'm going to drive a classic, then I'll be the first one to applaud you good. You looked at the numbers. You made a business decision. The problem I have is the people running down the road in those trucks at 80 miles an hour bitching about brokers and rates are too low and they're going out of bid. Well, then do something about it. Stop blaming it on everybody else. If you want to drive that truck, fine. But don't bitch that your bottom line sucks because of everybody else's problems. 
and there's room for opportunity still. Uh, my previous truck, 370, uh, 2001 379Pete with a 16-liter CAT engine, 18-speed, started out with 355 rear ends, and I converted it to a – actually converted that one to the 6x4 with 264 rear end. And with lighter loads, I could get eight miles to a gallon with that truck. But we we had the one was low We had the one glider that I always forget the guy's name. He's still out there. Bruce knows him really well. He built a three seventy nine glider, and they were achieving damn near nine miles to the gallon out of that thing. Now, what it tells us is it could have been ten. Yep. But if you can get to nine and drive the truck you absolutely love, hell yes, I, I'd be all for that. And this guy doesn't run around blaming, you know, his bottom line on anybody else. So it, it's it's possible. But the thing to know, it's like speed. You know, we've proven, yeah, you can go 75 and even 80 and get some pretty impressive fuel mileage today if you spec the truck right. But you can never get more going faster than you could have achieved going slower. We just have to remember that. Same thing with a classic. Could you get nine miles to the gallon? We proved it. It's possible. It's tough. It's not going to happen in many operations, but you can do it. You got seven to eight, which is still excellent. We always have to remember, add one more mile per gallon if we would have changed the aerodynamics. So one of the things that I always think about in regards to this, the guys that really like the classic look, and I, the, and I just cannot get this out of my mind. I always think to myself, why in the hell would you want to work harder to make less money. Even if you drive it slow and careful um, and you get eight or eight and a half, whatever it is, I mean, you, you're still going to do way better with an aerodynamic if, if you do the same, right. the same amount of care. Exactly. So I, I guess there, you know, there's, there's a cool factor thing there. Some people just absolutely love that. And I, I guess I, I've looked at it and analyze data for so long that the cool factor to me, I, I could care less. Right. You know, no, right. There is I, nobody going down the road going, Oh my God, look at that guy driving that. Nobody cares. They just don't, <laughs> you know, it's nice to have a nice. And even if they do for your, yeah. And even, even if, if they, they do, do you, why do I care? I don't know. So them. if you go from guys getting 5.2, you know, like my 30 days, 10, four, 60s, 10, three, nine, nineties, 10, four, five, Lifetimes ten point one five at sixty five mile an hour average. Right. Why would you? I, right. it it, just, it's, yeah, I have a hard time with it myself personally, but I, I get it. You know, guys like that that cool look. It's just man, that's an expensive like. And yeah, that's what's I, changed me. Yeah, in my younger years, it, you know, when I had a graphics painted all over my my previous truck, mm-hmm. and yeah, I could care less about any of that anymore you don't grow up you don't sitting down on the floor <laughs> in a 379p yeah gotcha <laughs> and I, I put air in the seat over the years <laughs> <laughs> all right we're uh but we're, we're getting we're gonna move along i want to make sure we get to all the speakers i think we've got jamie back i, I think we had lost people oh sure go ahead jump out here i'm at a delivery and good news for all of my haters out there uh, I've been working so hard. I'm taking the next two weeks off. So nobody will hear from me. <laughs> oh, uh, we'll miss you. Have fun. All right. See you, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jamie, you with us? 
Yeah, Matt's going to give some other people a chance at some freight, huh? Hogging <laughs> <laughs> it all up. <laughs> Sorry, Jamie, you've got the wrong trailer. <laughs> oh, it's not that warm out yet, is it? <laughs> yeah. So, Jamie, um, tell us your specs and your fuel mileage. 30-day, 90-lifetime, whatever you want to tell us. Oh, sure, sure. My truck's very similar to Joel's in the powertrain department. Maybe not identical, but... The, I got a 22 Mac Anthem. It is the 62T, which basically stands for a 6x2. I got a liftable pusher axle. I have a 216 gear ratio, uh, Dana. Uh, coupled there with the MP8HE with the energy recovery technology, as we call it at Mac, <laughs> the ERT. And... Uh, it's, Wait a minute. it's not the that, same thing as turbo, turbo compound. No, no, it is not. I swear to God, it's not. It looks identical in every way, but it's not. It's an ERT, sir. ERT. I'll tell you what the difference is. It's a, di it's a different color. It's red, and that makes all the difference That's in it. the world. That's it. <laughs> That's what it comes down to, what color you like. You like yours like a bluish green or like a darkish red? Somebody... Somebody at Volvo should be shot for that engine color. I'm sorry. You know, God bless them. They're sticking with it, though. <laughs> they are. I know. <laughs> Jeez. Come on. Hey, 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 Joel, you need to, to convince them to paint it purple. Well, you know that they, they do all their advertising stuff when they take them to shows and stuff. They're this very, very pretty blue, deep blue, but yet they show up green in the the ugly green in the truck. Like, yeah. Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Jamie, give us some numbers. What kind of fuel so, numbers are you cranking out these days? I got 146,000 miles on the truck. She's just getting broken. I got my 30-day I'm pretty proud of at 10.19 right now. Nice. It's been doing fantastic. Let me, uh, let me stop right there. Let me stop because I want people to understand what we're talking about. I know 30 days should be pretty clear, but I want to make sure. We are not cherry-picking one load that you were 4,000 pounds in the box and going from Colorado to Kansas City with a 30-mile-an-hour tailwind. It's not the kind of numbers we ever talk about, except maybe just to be funny and say I got 15 miles to the gallon the other day. But when we talk about fuel mileage, we don't like to talk about anything less than a 30-day average. That takes into account heavy loads, light loads, empty miles, lots of different terrain, weather conditions over 30 days. That, that, those are true numbers. We know what you're accomplishing. Then we go on to 60-day, 90-day, and, and Joel even gave us his lifetime. And his lifetime on this truck is over 10. This is a truck that gets... 10 plus miles to the gallon, not once in a while, all the time. Yeah, I don't know how I can't, you know, I'm always a little shy of Joel's numbers, that's for sure. That Volvo just does a little extra, I think. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, yeah, my lifetime's like 8.8, .8, but like I said the other day, I, I've had other drivers in this truck. Right. Um, right. We've seen Mid lows down into the sevens, you know, with guys driving this thing, but you know, the I don't have this truck governed. It'll do 85, and, and trust me, it's, uh -huh. it's done it. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are those are awesome numbers. Um, let me see. Okay, I think we've gotten through. Oh, no, we've got a request here. All right. Um, 
Taylor. Let me give him a second here. T-Pain. Taylor, you with us? Yes, sir. How are you today? There you are. Good morning. So, Ken, what do you think so far? I think uh, I'd like to get that, uh, Joel, to, to give me the English version of what he just said <laughs> earlier. <laughs> that, that's why I keep asking him to talk about it more. The more he talks about it, the more we'll start to understand it. But, it, but it's really good stuff. It is. So, so I want to give you perspective from, from reality, okay, from people okay. that when I, start, when I bought my first truck, I thought, you know, I was just excited to have a truck. I had a Cummins ISX. And I got five and a half miles to the gallon. Hey, let me let, let me jump in there, and I'll let all the other speakers jump in if they want to. My first truck was a six V ninety two Detroit, <laughs> and I worried more about oil mileage than I did fuel mileage. <laughs> I had a I had an eight V seventy one, which is typically typically a three eighteen, but it was a two eighty three. We put smaller injectors. Oh in man! It. And uh, uh, I'm with you, if Unless we were running 50-weight oil, you were more concerned about keeping oil in the damn thing than, than anything else. That's fuel. exactly right. Right. Yeah. So with that being said, it, I tell it, my so, guys, my people I talk to about fuel mileage, okay, that this truck, um, can you hear me? Gotcha. Yeah, go ahead, Taylor. All right. So I tell everybody that the new truck that I bought, which is a, a newer truck, it's a 2016 uh, 579 Peterbilt. So... I tell everybody I got this truck for free because you're talking about saving a million dollars through a career. Uh, I got a, 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 almost a two hundred thousand dollar truck for free, and how I absolutely I, and how I explain that is I, now I'm getting eight point six versus five point five, which is more than a tank of gas a, a week saving. Awesome! So that tank of gas, congratulations. Hey, if, if, if my old business standard was acceptable, then I that I can confirm that I got this truck for free. And just yeah. one tank, of, yeah. And in some weeks, I save more than a tank. So, so I, they can have the hoods. I'll take the arrow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. And we've all been there. I mean, I did not start driving thinking about fuel economy, but it didn't take me long. I've told the story many times. It was actually accidental. I just got lucky and and bought a very special truck that that Swift had spec. I pulled doubles and I did start to understand even back then, why do all these people use tandem axle tractors to pull doubles? None of the fleets that pull doubles do it. There must be a reason. And I didn't really get it. So I started looking for a single axle sleeper. I was upgrade or I was adding a truck to my fleet and I'm just searching like I always do. And I come across this Volvo, 91 Volvo. 11 liter Detroit, and it's only got like 80,000 miles on it. And I called and I said, what's the deal? Why is this thing for sale? Well, it was a Swift truck and they had a contract for doubles and they lost the contract and they're just getting rid of these things. And I said, all right, it looks interesting to me. I didn't know a lot about specs back then, but I bought the truck and the first thing I realized, it only went 57 miles an hour. <laughs> That's how I got my 57 mile an hour thing. That's as fast as this truck would go. And I didn't know how to make it go any faster. <laughs> so, you know, I was in Ohio at the time. It was still 55 miles an hour. So I thought, you know what? I'm not going to get that one ticket a year that I seem to get here all the time because um, I can't even get to 60. So I just left it. I, I already owned it. I didn't know what else to do with it. 
And then I was doing my accounting and I accounted for each truck separately. And I called the driver up and I said, hey, you've got to turn in all your fuel tickets. And he said, I did. And I said, no, you couldn't have. And he said, no, I've, I've turned everything in. Check the miles. And I did. And I thought, wait a minute. How could I have spent so much less on fuel on this truck? I, that's how little I knew about fuel economy at the time. When I saw that number, I thought, wait a minute. What's so different about this truck compared to all the other trucks I've ever owned? And how, how can it possibly save me this much money? But it did. And that's what got me interested. I went back through my numbers. I don't know if I've ever told this part of the story. I don't know if I ever remembered this part. I have probably told people that that truck had 264 gears and ran indirect. And it didn't. This was that weird Swift spec that they put 293s uh -huh. in this. That's why it was a 57 mile an hour yeah. truck. But it, it all, and everybody hated these things. Mm -hmm. They bought them, they would turn them up, they would get horrible fuel economy. <laughs> and mine was just killing it because I just left it at 57 and started driving that way. Yeah, that was that was built with that 11-1 Detroit to run 57. And the second yep. you took it any faster, it would just crash yeah. and burn fuel efficiency-wise. Yep. And performance, it fell on its yep. face, it wouldn't pull. Yep. It was awful up at those at sixty and above. It was just awful to yep. drive. You know, hey, Kevin, we still have the uh, the little uh, Freightliner I got from you, the single axle. Do Do you really? And still running it. Uh, unbelievable. You know, I, I mean, I haul that, containers. It's got the little Mercedes motor in it. It yeah, does. Right? Seven Seven miles to the gallon. Um, hey, hey, David, I need to clarify something. Because sure. I was just talking about this truck the other day, and I mentioned that, you know, I worked out a deal with you, and you ended up with this truck. Mm -hmm. But then when I told the story of the truck, people might think that I don't like you. Because <laughs> I said this was the worst truck I had ever owned in my mm -hmm. life. But you and I talked about it. I was upfront honest with you about all the reasons why it was such a lousy truck. And you said, none of that really matters the way I'm going to use it. And you got it. And I'm glad that you're actually still using it. That's awesome. I still use it today. I I've honestly don't have a lot of problems out of it. Um, you know, I worked them all out. <laughs> yeah, I think you did. <laughs> well, it's got the Meritor <laughs> transmission in it. And that I know it, it's, it gets a mind of its own. And, you have to shift it manually sometimes, but we had a whole the control box. We had a whole on. fleet of those with that Meritor transmission, and the fix that Freightliner finally came up in our situation was they had to go in and they had to solder every damn electrical connection involved with the transmission because there was too much voltage. No too way. Too much voltage drop over the connection would make those transmissions do stupid shit, and after they uh, soldered everything, they ran fine. That's crazy. I mean, I, I'm glad you yeah. told me that yep. because it makes sense. Yep. Yep. We had 12 it, or 13 it, of those damn things, and every one of them, just, Kevin, just like you described, that same shit. And, of course, you know, yep. we just had bought those things, and my brother was just livid, pissed. And, man, so was he I. just went in there and ripped their ass up one side and down the other. And they sent a guy out there with a soldering gun. The I next did, day too. And soldered everything on the first one. We took it out. Perfect. And that's it was voltage voltage I, drop across the connections makes it shift goofy because it has that voltage doubler I, deal on there and it was just playing yep. games with the voltage doubler and all that bullshit and you solder those connections and you probably won't have a minute's problem out of it. 
I swear I was in the service manager's office when this finally came to a head. I had already spent about 15000 on this, and the truck still would get towed in mm-hmm. every couple of months. And I, w- I, I was jumping up and down on his desk, I think, screaming at him. And that's not me. I don't do that, but I had just yeah. lost it. And he stood up and he said, look, I get it. He said, but we've spent 20000 yes. that we yes. haven't charged yes. you yet. Yes, and I'll tell you right away, and you know I'm not a Freightliner guy, Freightliner was excellent. It was the the Meritor people. They were throwing yeah. them right under the bus. It, well, it's, it's their problem. It's right. not us. And I was like, yes. oh, <laughs> right. So yeah, I, no, I I will yeah, agree yeah, with you. It was yeah, all Meritor. Ever since yeah. then, I I just have not been a Meritor because they just literally threw them people under the bus. And I was like, nah, yep. they did that same exact thing. Yeah, that's deal, bad. bad same thing. as far as I'm yep. concerned. So I agree. You know, we added right. a PTO to this thing, and I called Meritor, and they was absolutely no help whatsoever. Nope, none. They won't even talk to you. They act like the transmission isn't even theirs. I'm, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, Kevin, that's awesome, though. I'm glad you're still using it. Hey, cool Kevin, I have a, a, a follow-up on my question. Sure. So we're talking about fuel economy, okay? Uh, I, I, I save a lot of money by not idling. I have electric air conditioner now through batteries mm-hmm. excellent but but let's talk about snake oil mm-hmm. okay because you spend twenty dollars on a gallon of uh additives or half a gallon of additives uh what's your take on just buying twenty dollars worth of kerosene so, well like five gallons <laughs> now that, so it, you know, there was a time when <laughs> when that worked there was a time when we used to dump automatic transmission fluid in the tanks pretty regular and it helped mm-hmm. things that those days are long gone um, Joel and I should probably schedule a space like this where additives are the topic. And the reason I say that both of us have done a lot of testing and Joel, I, I think both of us have gone back and forth over the years on certain additives. That, and, that, right. That I mean, correct. I think, you know, before the emission, it's not an easy before topic. emission systems came along. You know, you really had to be a trucking geek to say, yeah, I want to spend that extra money to put the additive in because I can feel something. Um, yeah. Now, with emission systems, things are a little easier to, to track. There is absolutely a time and a place for it. Um, the terms. But they have to be the right it, additive. It does too. for the situation that you're, that you're facing. Right. I, if, if you have right. a truck that's geared all wrong. There is an additive for that that will help control soot and help to, to con, you know, take care of the emission system. If you're geared right, you just kind of want to optimize cetane levels for the higher compression engines and to, to make sure that we're not producing uh, uh, soot. So uh, snake oil, yeah. no. Um, there's absolutely uh, um, need. Uh, we have the crappiest diesel fuel in the world in the United States, far and away. I, even Mexico has better diesel fuel than we do. So um, yeah. you just yeah. have to be aware that the Europeans probably don't have any need for additive, period. They have outstanding diesel fuel over there. So um, just have to keep that in mind. Yeah, so it, Taylor, I didn't mean to kind of not answer the question because we could talk about, sure, there are tons of additives on the market that aren't going to do anything. We have to know what's in an additive and why are we using it? What are we trying to accomplish? So it really could use its own show so we can take 
each scenario, here's when we might use this additive or that additive, or in this truck, we might use this, and here's why. And today has been a really long show already, and uh, we got more. So I, I think that one will deserve its own space. What do you think? Yeah. And, and, you know, we could do a whole show on, let's not just call it additives. Let's do a show on snake oil. Oh my God. I can't tell you how many devices I have bought over the years. And I bought them knowing they weren't going to work. I could look at them and say, that's not going to work. And I would tell the people that. And, and normally they couldn't argue with mm -hmm. me, even though it's their product, you start into physics and, and they just get lost. You know, they get that deer in the headlights look, but I would buy it anyway, just so I could go test it and prove it and show the numbers for a while. I had what I believed was one of the best arrangements you could have. If you wanted to test fuel economy in the real world, I had three trucks running the exact same route every day within an hour of each other. The freight didn't change that much because it was all FedEx. The drivers were the same, had been in those same trucks for years. So when I tested something, I would have two trucks testing the device. Like when I tested fleet air filters, when I met David, and it, as soon as I looked at a fleet air filter, I knew that had the potential to work. It just made sense. But of course, I'm going to test it. Two of the trucks got fleet air filters. One didn't. That's the control truck. I would test 30 days prior to making the change, then 30 days after. And if something happened to that truck during that 60-day period, even just replacing one tire, I'd start yep. over. Yep. I wouldn't use those yep. numbers. And there were times where I would look at the two trucks where I made a change and I would say, oh, look, they're both up three tenths of a mile per gallon. Must have worked, except I'd look at the control truck and guess what? It was up three tenths of a mile per gallon. <laughs> it was weather and traffic. They're running the exact same route every day. So that to me was, you know, for a small operation, uh, one of the, the times that I was really, really able to learn a lot and prove so a lot. One of the things that you always have to keep in mind as an owner operator, especially if you're a single truck operation, we can track fuel mileage for years, but all we can track is the trend. We can never track the delta because we have no sample Correct. size. And I mean, tracking the trend is useful, especially if the trend is very big. Then you've kind of got a thing in your mind saying, hey, the delta is probably there. You're probably going to see it. Um, that's kind of the advantage I like to think that I have working with my brother still in hey, a fleet, hey, Joel, fleet operation. Joel, uh -huh. Joel um, just because we had this earlier, mm -hmm. I, I know delta when, when you work with this stuff all the time seems like, yeah, but, but people want English. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. we're, we're tracking the change, I guess, then we'll call it that way. So we have the, the trend and the change. So um, right. you know, being able to work with my brother and several other larger fleets, sample size is important when you're tracking the, yeah. the change. So if you can have 15 trucks with and 15 without – then you get pretty confident in what's going on. The other way you can get some confidence is what Kevin's doing here with his, with his fuel gauges app. Sure, all these people are individually um, just tracking trends, 
But when you see multiple people with the same trend line, then you can start to have some confidence in, in what's happening as well. So just one truck, and I, you see these testimonials all the time. Oh, I had my truck, and I gained you know, half a mile. That's just a trend line. So you have to be very careful and understand that it's only a trend. It may, in fact, include the change, but you don't know that. So you always have, you always have to right. remember that. So, and last week I talked about the list I started, you know, I was up to 70 or 80 different factors that could affect fuel mileage, many not in our control, weather and wind and some other things, but 70 to 80 items. So when you change one of those and go make one trip, you just have to understand that's, that's, it's data, and we have to start somewhere, but that one trip is has no value at all by itself. It, it tells us right, nothing. Right, absolutely, absolutely, 100% right. Just, But that's where we have to just start. Just the wind and then the more you do it, the, on an individual trip can throw yeah. numbers huge, and time, time right. of year, the density of the air. And here's something just to think about in, in just an overall terms real quick, Kevin. So I was coming across Nevada and, and Utah the other day, and I had a 40-mile-an-hour broadside wind, but it was like 80 degrees, you know, and it was just kind of a nuisance. It, right. If I would have had that 40-mile-an-hour broadside at 10 below zero, that would have rolled the truck over. Oh, man. It's the density of the, of the yeah. wind. And, and, you know, people just don't think about these types of things, but there's all that type of stuff goes into this, and it, it gets very confusing and extremely difficult to get accurate numbers. You know, when we talk about, you know, snake oil and products, and, and you and I have talked about this, we both had our criteria based on physics. You look at a product, mm -hmm. will it affect aerodynamics, mechanical resistance, rolling resistance, or engine efficiency? Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, then it can't improve your fuel mileage. Not likely. Nope. I don't care how much fairy dust they sprinkle on it. It can't work. Yeah, the... the the so, printed circuit you slap on your fuel tank it yes. doesn't doesn't do a whole lot. Changes the <laughs> changes the molecular fuel. Yeah, okay. But but here's a goofy thing that I looked at. I was in a Freightliner dealer when I first moved here to Portland. I walked by this thing, I look at it, and I thought, I get it. I know why they did that. But it was weird. They took the turnout at the top of your stack mm -hmm. and they cut half of the circle off on the back. Okay. So now your turnout had had trailing edges. Vacuum. Exactly. <laughs> I looked at that and I thought, that's brilliant. We created a vacuum to help pull the exhaust out of the stack, oh, and we reduced back pressure on the engine. Now, can you put that on one truck and measure it? Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> but do we know it, it It will have an impact? It does. It works. That's funny. The, the, the fly swatter mud flaps. I laughed at those things and called them a joke, but they're, they're, it, they actually, it, 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 the physics are there. I'm in every now, position on my truck. <laughs> exactly. So sometimes we look at stuff and think it's snake oil, but once you learn the physics of fuel mileage, you can look at most things and know whether it has a chance of working or not. I can't tell you, well, it will for sure or not, but I can usually tell you it won't for sure. Mm -hmm. I agree. All right. Do we have anybody else that wants to get in here? We've got an awful lot of people on this space. Anybody? 
Oh, you know what? Um, I did have a request here. Um, Anil, you're up. You need to unmute your mic, and then uh, you'll be able to talk to us here. Hey, can you hear me now? We can. Go ahead. Um, you know, I've listened to you on and off for a very long time, and uh, I think my first truck was one of, I joked it was a Kevin Rutherford special, although one century out the flip. Yeah. But, uh, we're, I've got a contrary in here, but we have a fourteen truck now, and I'm just not, like, seeing the misery. I'm kind of excited looking at truck bread. Oh, good. We're starting to like the other guy with the Peterbilt, but we're doing um, up a fleet that specs for fuel mileage. So we started picking up 2020s for around $60,000. But they, they were spec idiot at first. I mean, the first uh-huh. 90 days truck went out. You know, I saw what the driver did before at that 8.3 now. And Fantastic. Hey, before I forget, congratulations on 14 trucks. That's awesome. Yeah, we, we started. We never really got in the spot market. We've all been uh, leased on and direct chipper freight. But, um, you know, and I think about a year ago, we started looking at, we didn't want to upgrade to newer trucks because they were so expensive. Oh, choice. Well, we invested, we built out a shop, hired a mechanic and brought all of our maintenance in. That. Yeah. That bringing maintenance in-house was something that we done very early on with emission systems, and we were rolling the dice. We were about your size at the time, my brother, 14 trucks, and we were sweating bullets. We sent guys to all the Volvo classes, and, you know, we, we, we had them learn the shit inside and out, and we were we were spending money that we didn't have, to be quite honest with you. turned out to be the best thing that we ever done. So bringing that in-house and just train, 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 educate, educate, educate. You'll be good. Yeah, I like that. Anybody else? It's Friday. If this gets quiet, I'm bailing. <laughs> I might bail anyway. It's Friday. <laughs> I've had a long week. I did like four and a half hours yesterday. There you go. It's been a good week. All right. Uh, I don't see any requests. I don't hear any speakers oh, jumping in. Um, I'm be there. Yeah. Well, agree with them. It the hell out of them. The first couple months, yeah, just, we put a whole, a whole lot of money in the door. Unfortunately, <laughs> all of our yeah. except for the one IFX that I'm in the part for right now, are all freight liners and DC engines. But I mean, we figured out a long time ago, hey, you can find rebuilt mock sensors for hundred bucks. You know, compared to eighteen hundred dollars in a dealership. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of training. Yep. And as you grow I am a big fan of controlling your own maintenance. Yes. As you grow and you start to use more parts, you're gonna find that parts prices start to get a whole lot better at the dealerships for fleets and whatnot. And there's just there's so much advantage to it. But it it takes right around fifteen trucks before you can really start to justify your own shop and operation. And uh, it is it is scary as hell when you take that stuff. I mean, we were sweat bullets. I mean, it kept you up at night. And uh, the inventory, the training, all that expense, and it takes a while for you know that to start paying back. But once it starts paying back, man, it's it pays back. Awesome. Well, it's it's even little things because 
you know, we, we started a program where we bring the trucks in at least every 30 days. Mm-hmm. And we've got one spare truck and, you know, the one mechanic and he learns one system and, hey, you go, my friends, the elbow to hackle. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. Find me every little thing. There you, you know, go. You bring a truck in and don't find stuff, I'm going to be pissed. Mm-hmm. You know, and but the, yeah. The, the, the same kind of idea, Pittsburgh Power has the Hawkeye report. They have one mechanic that does it, and the guy is like an eagle eye. I have never seen somebody get so many things on a truck so fast. But that kind of maintenance, you know, if you don't have your own shop, you got to find a shop that treats you that way. Um, I, I, I am going to jump in here. We're going to start winding down. We're going to wrap this up by 11. Um, but I want to do a couple things as we're starting to wind down. Uh, one, we've got some awesome speakers here today. Now is your opportunity to follow them. You know, look up at the speaker list. Follow these guys. Um, we're going to be doing a lot more of this. They do a lot of this on their own. Um, they're they're always available to answer questions on social media. I've seen them a lot. So it's a great resource. So follow the speakers. Um, if you don't have our app yet to listen to us every day, all, well, not all day, but all day that I'm on, like I did an hour this morning that wasn't on Twitter, usually do several hours every day before we come over to Twitter. I, I am probably, I'm, uh, it's looking like I'm going to end up with, on a Twitter space at least four times a week now. Uh, I've got one more space that I might start next week or the week after. I'm not going to tell you what it's about yet. Um, so we'll be pretty active in spaces you can listen to all of our shows, including the spaces live on our app. This, this space is being broadcast on our app live right now. So if you have our app, you can listen to everything we do. It's all recorded. You can listen to them anytime you want. You can go back to them You can bookmark things. We've got lots of improvements coming up. So get our app and follow us there. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the speakers and just give them a chance to say some final words if they want before we wrap this up. So I'm just going to go with Joel first because you were just talking. Ahead, sure. Joel. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess like everything in life, it's, it's always attitude, attitude, attitude. Um, always try to have a positive attitude, keep an open mind and, and, uh, just listen more than you speak, you know? And, uh, you're gonna you're gonna do all right in trucking if if you can do those three things you're gonna do well. Good stuff, uh, Jamie. Well, I would just I would just add that uh, it's kind of I have a weird I shouldn't say weird but a nice trend I guess yeah, I wanted to throw out this week Hellbent Express you know with our 12 Max we uh, we only just experienced a couple of weeks ago a uh, a sensor failure in the emission system. That truck was uh, three and a half years old with 420,000 miles on it. So when we use fuel additive and the air dog system along with our trucks, so when it comes to maintenance, we, we just don't have any. You know, that's the crazy part. Like, it's just oil changes and tires. That's that's what we that spend our money on. Yeah, so I love that. Just a fun fact I wanted to throw out there. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. All right, great stuff. Um, David, I want you to take some time and tell us a little more about Fleet Air Filter. Let, let, me, let me explain Fleet Air Filter and why it works and see how well I do, and then you can tell the real story. Uh, this was one of those products, like I said, as soon as I looked at it, made sense to me. 
diesel engines thrive on fresh air. The more fresh air you can feed into that cylinder, the, the better everything gets. So when I looked at paper filters, which have the technology hasn't changed in about 100 years, I think, uh, it didn't make sense to me that there had to be a better way than this. And, that, and it dawned on me, wait a minute, in all the other high performance stuff I do off road and everything, we use foam filters, washable many times. And I, I for wondered for a while why we didn't have it. And then, uh, actually, David, I think you met Bruce first somewhere. I think yeah. Bruce introduced you to me. The Mid-America Truck Show. Okay. Yeah, I thought that's how that whole thing went. And I looked at the product, and, of course, I tested it and got results like I thought I would. This is not snake oil. This works. And, and here's the quick explanation, David. You can add to it if you want. A paper filter is dense. It has to be dense so that dirt can't get through. If dirt gets through, we're going to wipe out our engine. But that density restricts airflow, and we know that it does. We put gauges on there to measure our restrictions so that we can get rid of it and put a new filter in if we want. Right. So what we do... So the idea behind foam, how can foam allow more airflow but actually clean more dirt, which it does? And here's why. The foam is open. It's not dense and closed like paper that's why it flows more air well then how then can it trap more dirt because of the oil and static the oil and static attract the dirt to the foam to the filter and trap it and it's much more efficient than paper so we get a performance increase we get it's better for our emissions to have more air. It is better for fuel economy to have more air. And we now have a lifetime filter. So our maintenance cost goes down. We wash them, re-oil them, put them back in. I recommend getting one filter and two sets of wraps and always having a clean wrap. Then when you want to change your wraps, you take your filter out, re-wrap it, stick it back in, off you go. Then when you've got some downtime, you go wash the other set. But I do, David. You know, I, you need a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I do. <laughs> Something to do in my spare time. That yeah, you like me? You probably don't have very many of those. Yeah. Um, th there's there's some big changes that's happened with fleet. Um, and I really haven't told anybody this, so this is gonna be new to the world. Awesome. I, I actually bought the partner out in Fleet Air about a month ago. Do you mean I'm not gonna get any more mushroom? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I mean, we can. We, we are all still friends. Roger has, <laughs> he, he decided to retire. Good, so, good. So um, we had an agreement when we originally started Fleet that, you know, if it was ever a buyout, it wasn't a crazy amount of money. Um, pretty much what he asked me to do was buy him out, and he asked me to let my son have his part. Wow. Which everybody knows my son's not very old. He's only 13, so... It, when he becomes of age, he, he'll have. He's a mature thirteen. Very mature. <laughs> he's he's very smart. I mean, he's way smarter than me. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I purchased it, and I have went when we went to the truck show this year, and we brought some trailers, and we moved everything to Alabama. Built a okay. new. Okay. Uh, everything's done in house now. Um, and it's all done in Alabama versus having two locations. You know, the original location awesome. here was the location that done all the CNC work. Right. Well, now that building is 
is uh, an assemble building. We assemble everything here, and we're doing all the CNC work here. And we're also offering uh, powder coating. So we start powder coating. Really? Yes. Nice. Especially the 3302s and the 2608s, which is in the peats. So why we're, why why you brought that up, you probably cover 90% of the truck and engine combinations on the road, right? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And always working on new ones. Um, right. We're actually working on the 23 uh, Kentworth T680 and the 23 Pete 579 right now. Okay. That's, that's in the works. Uh, we have added a 3D department to our shop. So we 3D print most of our filters now before they go to CNC. Wow. Which I got to come down and visit you. It's been a while. Sounds oh, like there's a lot of new stuff to see. There's, there's a lot of new stuff. So I, I live just so people know, I, I lived in your parking lot for two months because while I was down there, I blew up my truck. <laughs> and that is true. Yes, it is. And he wasn't a hot rod in his truck. I promise he was pulling in the driveway and hung a rod out of it. So I, I was bobtailing and I was decelerating coming up on the driveway and I have a big bang. And as soon as I heard it, I knew exactly what I is did. That your, uh, is that your Caterpillar power truck? No, that was a Series 60. Oh, yeah, it was a 60 Series. With only, with only 700 and some thousand miles yeah. on it. Mm-hmm. And I, it, I, it cratered it. It put a hole the size of a dinner plate in the side of the block. <laughs> wow. You could see everything in the motor at that point. So, so here's, here's the other funny story. I got to tell this. I know I was going to try to wrap this up, but I just thought this was hilarious. David, you will remember this. I am. I Now, we were in Louisville getting ready for the Louisville truck show. No, it had just ended. It Lisa ended. was going to Kansas City for the CMC. And I said, I'm going to take off and go down to David's shop. I want David to do some work on our trailer, the RV, and I'm going to work on the truck. David will let me use the tools in the shop, and I'm going to get some done work done on the truck. So I figured I'd be down there a week at the most, and then I'd head to Kansas City. Well, the last night, I take it out for a final test drive. I had just installed new headlights and adjusted them. So I wanted to take it out and drive it and see if I had it right. And I'm coming back, bobtailing, 40 miles an hour, and bang. As soon as it happened, I, that noise was so distinct. I'm like, I think I've got a big hole in the block. Engine was still running. I pulled into a parking spot, and sure enough, there was a pool of oil under it. So the next day, I'm just frantic. You know, I've got to get an engine. I've got to get to the CMC. What the hell am I going to do? Where am I going to find an engine on short notice? And we're talking about this standing in David's shop. And David, somebody that worked for you, one of your employees, I think it's the guy that was helping you with the cars at the time, wasn't it? He he walked he up. And he, he doesn't really know a lot about trucks. Yeah, he was he was helping you with cars. But he walked up, and here's what he said. He said, oh, he said, you need an engine? I have a friend that has a diesel engine sitting in his garage. And I'm like, yeah, what are the odds <laughs> what I need? So I said, can you call the guy? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, call him. And I asked him, I said, what engine is it? And he said, it's a, a Series 60. And I said, uh, is it a DDEC 4? And he said, yeah. And I said, why are you selling it? And he said, I bought it. It was supposed to have been rebuilt. I got to try to remember this. Oh, but the first time we changed the oil, we found big chunks of metal. 
So we just yanked it out of the truck and we put something else in and it's just been sitting there. And I told David, I said, can we send somebody over there to look at this thing? It was in Louisiana, wasn't it? Yes, in Amy, Louisiana, actually. We went over there. That engine was perfect. I have no idea where that metal had come from and that oil change, but there was nothing wrong with that engine mm. whatsoever. And he gave, I don't remember the price, but it was a hell of a deal. He was smoking, yes. <laughs> we we grabbed, I said, oh, you just hold on to that thing. We're coming over right now. And we got it, and David got some guys together and put that thing all back together for me. But that was a crazy story. What I think come to find out where the metal come from was the bull gear. Because, oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, because the guy, they had it rebuilt, and they put a new bull gear in it after the fact. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And, and that I think, I mean, he never said that, but after thinking about it, you know, for so long, then he's like, hey, I bet it come from the bull gear. You know, originally, then they put a new one in it and just had metal in it. I mean, so if I'm if I'm remembering this right, I didn't even pay ten thousand dollars for that engine. I, I I think it was only like fifty five hundred bucks or something. That's wow. right. I, 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 nice. So this is a fresh a fresh in frame on a Series sixty, and I bought it for fifty five hundred. Wow. wow. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, because I was shocked that we found one like that quick. Oh. Oh, and and the, just the way the guy walked up. Oh, you need a diesel engine? My friend has one. <laughs> I mean, what the? It could be an Isuzu for all we know. <laughs> we we didn't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Great story. All right. So, David, if somebody wants to know more about fleet air filters, or really, they should just go buy one if they don't have one. That's my advice. How do, what are they? What should they do next? Um, I mean, you can call us at um, 251-654-0892, or you can go to our website at uh, fleet-airfilters.com, or you can go see our, our dealers. I mean, we got Pittsburgh, Power 4, States, Iowa, 80. I'm one. Um, you know, so, I mean, we got dealers all over the place. So, That's right. And they're all listed on our website. If if you call us and we don't have it in stock, please go to our dealers and, and look and see if they have it in stock um yes great advice so this is some things that i changed on yes so if if we get phone calls we don't have it you know our our people answering the phone now we want to have it where we know what i mean i'm all about helping people i'm Right. Money is the least thing that I think about. I mean, I think about you know, make something work. And I get a lot of reason not to build it. But the reason I get that, the reason I don't build them is because if the filter don't work, I won't sell it. That's just the exactly. rule. Exactly. Right. You know, I don't, if, if I can't make it at least two tenths, it's not even on my radar no more. I'll scratch it and move on to something else. And I can verify it's always been that way. Yes. Um, yep. Great stuff. All right. Um, um, and I, I got to move on here quick. Fleet air filter. Call them up. Really. Um, you, you won't regret it. It's a fantastic product. Hey, uh, Mac, jump in here. No, where you go? Mac? I'm here. Sorry. I had to, there you are. Go ahead. I had to mute on. Um, earlier, I heard one of the guys say something about, I, I think it was Jamie talking about, or someone, one of the other guys talking about fuel additive. 
I'd like to know which fuel additive if they use and why. Okay. Um, right after that, I actually said that's such an important topic, and it's not as simple as most people think. We're gonna well, let's just do it next week. Joel, okay. is that all right? Sure. All right, that's fine. Yeah, we're going to do a whole show where that's the theme. Like today was, you know, just fuel mileage and generate in general fleet air filter. And that next okay. week's theme is going to be additives. We want to okay. make sure we cover this properly. Okay. There are some additives that are absolutely useful and, and necessary, but it's not always the same for the same engine, the same duty cycle, the same operation. So we will go through the additives we have found over the years that work and tell you what probably won't work, but let's do it on a whole show. Okay. Well, where I'm at, uh, this, this, um, I don't know if you remember years ago, but you and I went at it pretty hard, uh, cause I had just bought another long nose Pete and it's when you were starting the, uh, discussions on the more fuel efficient truck. Yeah. I don't know why there's right. an echo. I'm sorry. Um, well, at this Volvo, it is a mid-roof. I bought it when I was doing hopper. Uh, it's 500 horsepower, 2100 RPMs, a D13-11. Um, it's got the 12, uh, 12-speed auto manual, which is what you were talking about yesterday to that young fella. Right. I really like it. Um, the rear ends are an Amboid in the front MT40, and in the uh, ratio is 3.25. And I am getting somewhere between six and six and a half, depending upon when I calculate the fuel mileage for the whole month. So what year is this? It's an 18. And on my screen, I'm getting 7.1. I was getting 7.3 or 4 till I put the X card up front. And after seeing a couple <laughs> guys uh, front completely destroyed with a Volvo, and a lady on the uh, board of Hawaii, I showed her mine, and she has had repair after repair after repair because up there where she is in Canada, um, they they run so, quite – yeah, so. So let me, let me just touch on that topic because I can do it real quick. And this has come up over the years too. Should, should you have these, you know, front-end guards if you're really, you know, into fuel economy? And the answer is maybe. And, and again, it's like everything else. If we really want to maximize things, we can't make blanket statements. I used to say, oh, hell no, you'd never have one of those things on there. But then I started talking to people that said, look, I've been doing this a long time. I'm going to hit one deer a year. I do it every year. And here's how much it costs me. D deductibles and downtime. And, I, and then I looked at it and thought, wait a minute. If that's the case, then you, you should have one of those on there. Kevin, I, I, I can tell you that yeah. Deer Guard in his particular case is not the issue. That 325 right. rear axle ratio is exactly. kicking his ass. Exactly. Really yeah, that was going to be my next question was to have you. I bought it for a couple different reasons, um, but it's also, also the wheelbase is what's killing me. The distance between the back of the truck and the oh, trailer. Yeah. This was used for a tanker mm. you also mentioned it's a mid-roof what trailer are you pulling I'm pulling a box trailer right now I'm doing yeah. power only oh. yeah you're losing at at least a half mile per gallon right there alone oh yeah yeah i understand that yeah Easily. yeah good a good fairing up there and a new set of gears and we could get that mile per gallon for you would you agree oh, Joel? at least yeah 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 
what would you suggest going to for the rear end ratio? So that year, um, with the 12 speed, the, the most aggressive you're going to be able to go is 2.47 because you'll start to run into startability issues and you don't want to be putting clutches and stuff in that truck. I would put a, a 247 in it and I would throw an air dog on it and you will be amazed. Okay, now I start out, now you know where I'm at and where I'm starting out and what I'm battling when I go, when I leave, mm -hmm. you know, the mountain ranges in Virginia and West Virginia, you know, so all that when I start out. So here's the thing. When you get aggressive enough with a downsped powertrain and you can still maintain your startability, right now you've got that top gear mindset. And you're thinking, oh, my God, 247, I'm not going up a hill. This is going to be a pain in the ass. It's not going to work. It's just going to run one gear down. And the I-shift being a single counter shaft transmission is very efficient, whether you're an overdrive, direct drive, or even underdrive. We, we're not pumping a lot of oil around. We don't have a lot of gears just sitting there doing nothing but still spinning. There's no auxiliary section to speak of. We have a planetary back there. So that's really the key to really leverage in the whole downsped concept. And right now, you're spinning that big, heavy crankshaft that we talked about earlier in the show way faster than what you need to. And it's, it's, right. it's very, very problematic. And if any truck is going to benefit from a rear axle ratio change, it's a Volvo because of that crankshaft. So 247, put yourself an air dog on that thing. Um, you know, get an upper fairing, yeah, put an upper fairing on it, and you you are going to gain every bit of a mile a gallon. Maybe a mile and yeah, a half. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Would not surprise me. What are you talking? What are you talking money wise for uh, replacing the chunk? Look, I had a friend who done this, and he went and shopped them used really hard, and I think he was thirty five or forty five hundred dollars. If you can get one done for under five thousand, grab it. Okay. Fairing will probably cost you installed and painted about two grand. Again, I've, find got, a, it, I've got a find, real good body shop down in, in High Point. That's, there you uh, go. Let them find it used, and you can probably get it done for a thousand. Well, maybe with inflation, it's higher today. I don't know, but you're going to be right in that range, and it's worth every penny, just like the gear changes and the air dog as well. This will be three great investments that you'll probably break even in six months or less. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank awesome. you. You're Did welcome. You fleet air Great way to finish the show, by the way. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Had a fleet air filter that list. What are we thinking? Hey, I've got... We're, we're up to two miles to the gallon. Hey, I've got one in mind, and I will tell you, the greatest thing about the fleet air filter when you have a TC engine is you can hear that blowdown turbine spooling. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> I know. I mean, the turbo's falling, but we, the blowdown turbine just, hey, and it's, it's cool, yeah. Hey, hey, we we might not have a big classic hood, but we can pretend we're real <laughs> truckers with that there, turbo. There <laughs> That's right. Hey, I want to I ask a question if I can. Joel, you said about the air dog. Now, do you have a shop that you would recommend to do it because – the two shops that you know, I don't want to mention, they're great on everything yeah, else. Yeah, they, they say don't like it. they're not doing the air dog. They don't like it. Um, you pro you pro no, they're not doing it. You probably have to get a hold of um, the guy direct um, and uh, Jay over there at, at air dog. He'll, he'll get you set up where, where you need to go and, and who should do it. And if you ever get up to Michigan, Michigan MD alignment, Jim Fowler, he's excellent. Jim is excellent. I will second that. 
What's the name of that? Grand Rapids? No, no, he's he's in Southern no. Michigan. That little town is um, shoot, I can't say the name of it. Itty, itty bitty little town, Southern Michigan. Uh, I'll look just it north up. of Fort Wayne. Yeah, yeah. That, that Jim has got a great operation there. Um, former owner operator really gets does it. the majority of my work. Um, I still have my brother's guys do overhead and engine work. Obviously, if we if we want to do monkey around with anything inside but everything else i mean my alignments and air dog and oil bypass and all that stuff um jim does so it, virtually okay. everything we've ever talked about over the years or partnered with J jim is doing it md alignment um it, it just he's just got a great operation there and he's just a great guy uh so this was a uh, this was a great way to wrap up the show a real world example of of what we could improve all right, cool. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, good stuff. All right, we are going to wrap this up. Um, next week, we'll be doing at least the same three spaces we've been doing. So I'll give you a rundown. Wednesday, all about driver health on spaces. Thursday is our Twitter roundup, kind of free for all on spaces. Friday is exactly what you got today. And it's possible on Monday. I might schedule something for this coming Monday. It depends on what happens this weekend. If not, we'll have a new show, a new space on the following Monday. Uh, other than that, have a great 